Welcome to Blooming Out, Indiana's only LGBTQ plus news and public affairs show featuring music, events, and interviews, both local and global. From the WFHB studios in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Blooming Out. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Blooming Out. I'm Frankie Preslav. And I'm Alex Ashkin. Thank you for joining us on this very rainy Thursday evening for a new edition of Indiana's only queer public affairs radio show. We conveniently post to wfhb.org, so if you can't listen live, you can hear this and other episodes online via the WFHB website. Each and every week we produce a show by and for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and ally community. Our listeners can always count on us to cover the most pressing issues, interesting people, latest events reflecting the LGBTQ+, life in Indiana, the U.S., and across the world. Our featured stories focus around topics both at home and abroad. Tonight, we are going to discuss the latest development in the Trump administration's transgender military ban, and we are going to be getting a little funky and soulful tonight as we play some tunes from one of my personal favorite bands, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. We will be pulling a few selections from their album, 100 Days, 100 Nights. We recently had the opportunity to speak with Steve Sanders, an associate professor at the Indiana University Mauer School of Law. We will be discussing the importance of the civil rights in a device time and taking an in-depth look at the Trump administration's most recent actions regarding the transgender military ban. Last Friday, March 21st, the Trump administration made its next attempt to ban transgender individuals from serving in the armed forces. Political news outlet The Hill mentions that a new memo had been filed by the Trump administration in a U.S. district court located in Seattle. The memo purportedly reads, transgender persons with a history or diagnosis of gender dysphoria, individuals who the policies state may require substantial medical treatment, including medications and surgeries, are disqualified from military service except under certain limited circumstances. Supposedly, there are no guidelines regarding the implementation of this new advisement, The Hill notes that Mattis, uh, Department of Defense, uh, or Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, will have some leeway in implementing the policy. The memo states as well that uh, Homeland Security Secretary Christian Nielsen will have a good amount of leeway when it comes to implementation with the Coast Guard. So uh, this is sort of like an interesting thing, and... As our listeners will sort of find out, because we get really get into this with Steve, that this is sort of a, um, a little bit of a legal move that a lot of people are wondering, you know, what is the overall objective behind this? Um, this new memo, uh, for all intents and purposes, to my knowledge, has not been uh, leaked or have a publicly uh, available copy. So it's hard to give a 100% answer with regards to what is the exact contents of this uh, notification. The important thing is, though, is that it 
appears on its face to have uh, sort of reduced some of the individuals who might be otherwise affected by the transgender military ban. As stated in our interview, uh, a lot of people are wondering if it might affect uh, people who are hoping to join the armed forces or perhaps uh, individuals who uh, might otherwise have to kind of quote-unquote go stealth again because uh, we aren't sure how um, the policy might affect individuals who are currently receiving things like hormone replacement therapy or uh, other such sort of surgical uh, procedures, surgical procedures, psychological treatments, things like that while they're serving. So it's a bit of a, you know, toss up at the end of the day. Right now, we don't exactly know the contents of this. But I guess we can probably rest assured that it won't be too friendly. Absolutely. And this is sort of when I get to, you know, sit on my, or I guess get up on my soapbox a little bit, because this one is a little weird, because not only was there all this sort of new talk about a new memo, but the Los Angeles Blade actually... Uh, detailed some interesting things coming from the exact same district court where this new memo was filed. Uh, During that time, uh, they said the Thursday, immediately before, March 20th, uh, U.S. District Court Judge Marsha Peckman ordered the Trump administration to reveal what quote-unquote expert sources were consulted before the writing of the initial transgender military ban. Less than 24 hours later, uh, and a, a spokesperson for the Trump administration said that they were going to no longer try to argue that case and uh, basically dropped any pretense of trying to identify who was this source of information, who was consulted here. So this is where it gets a little weird. Um why would you file another memo in the exact same district court after it got blocked? So we're going to kind of get a little bit into that over the next hour with our wonderful interview guest, Steve Saunders. But beyond all that, I mean, let's try and not, you know, focus too much on the negatives. And honestly, I haven't even heard how you're doing, Frankie. How's your week been? (laughs) On that note... (laughs) (laughs) It's been wet, like everybody else's. It's uh, been running kids around um, and trying to get them to the sporting events, the ones that have outdoor ones that are all getting canceled. <laughs> so it's messing up my uh, my my planning and my scheduling, and I'm actually burning a lot of fuel going back, dropping off, picking up, going back, dropping off, picking up. It's uh, it's uh, keeping me busy on mm-hmm. on that side. How about yourself? You know what? It it has been a great week. It, it one, you know, it it has been an incredibly busy week for me professionally, but I'm not going to bore you guys with that stuff. The thing that's really exciting is that it is fun drive here at WFHB. It is, you know, we're talking to some great folks. We're getting great content and hopefully you guys appreciate it. That's one of the things that we want to focus on the most is providing you folks with wonderful radio content 24 hours a day, seven days a week from right here in downtown Bloomington. And 
you know what, Frankie? Just I'm I'm not even trying to pitch right now, but I I think this is honestly one of my favorite things each week is you know getting inside the studio, talking the news, meeting wonderfully interesting people from all around the U.S. You know people who are concerned about the LGBTQ community and get their opinions and what can we do to help you know strengthen our community and you know kind of encourage this beneficial dialogue that sometimes seems really difficult to kind of get at these days. Well, first could be uh, calling us <laughs> at uh, 812-323-1200 and give us some money. <laughs> 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 so we can stay on the air and continue to have all these wonderful, marvelous people on and hit some you know topics that maybe other um, news media are not talking about, or at least, uh, you know, kind of playing off some of the news media of what's up and and going a little more in depth and, you know, having the local perspective of a lot of this is, and we live in a community again, where we're lucky to have so many individuals out there that uh, have so much knowledge and, you know, makes it possible, you know, at WFHB to, to have, you know, these unique individuals come in and, and, you know, give their firsthand report. Um, you don't find that a lot in, in many communities. Absolutely. And something that I think is great about our programming and stuff like Ola Bloomington and Bring It On is that we all strive to get guests with different levels of expertise, different areas of interest. I know within our past five months, we've had great guests like Frankie. <laughs> That's where I started. <laughs> yep. But beyond that, we've had people like Mayor John Hamilton. We have had both uh, Indiana 9th District uh, Democratic candidates, Liz Watson and Dan Cannon on. Just last week, we had the Indiana chair or chairperson of the Indiana Log Cabin Republicans, Tyler Vanover on the show. And really, I think that this is honestly a pretty unique set of people that we get in here, you know, most weeks, you know, sometimes me and Frankie have to hold our own a bit in the studio, but we're honestly... Well, we get guests that come in, know their stuff, and it makes our job a lot easier. Um, You know, I was thinking that uh, just this last time with our, you know, our our guests that we're going to have tonight is that, you know, the information and the quality was, you know, there wasn't a lot to add in the sense. um, And and we are lucky to have these people. And it would be a shame not to have a a radio show like this um, available. Um, And that's why it's important for people to to donate and and, uh, you know puts their, their, their money where their mouth is or something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe not their mouth, their ears, I guess. Yeah, be, uh, <laughs> exactly. Where <laughs> their I, I didn't have dinner sad. yet, so I, I'm, it's my mouth. <laughs> um, but yeah, so give us a call at 812-323-1200, and we'll be happy to uh, talk and listen and, and tell us you know, what, what your favorite programs are and, and give us suggestions too. We, we'd love to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you guys call in, we are more than happy to give you a shout out. Additionally, if you would rather do it, you know, the old fashioned way, there have been mailers to a lot of our previous patrons. So if you want to support your local postman, you can do it via snail mail. If you are more technology uh, oriented, you can go online to donate 
www.wfhb.org and can use our secure donation link to donate. We really appreciate the fact that we have such a wonderful community that helps uplift us and support us. And we would like to believe at least that we kind of do a little bit of the same. And so, you know, always it's an open dialogue. Feel free to contact us. That number here is 812-323-1200. But before we get too far into our discussion tonight, I want to get a little funky. So, uh, I think we're going to be starting off with our music feature. Uh, we're going to be beginning with the titular track from Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings album, 100 Days, 100 Nights. And take it away. <laughs> One hundred days, one hundred nights, and no one man's heart. One hundred days, one hundred nights, and no one man's heart. And a little more before he knows his own. You know a man. Yeah. 
Yesterday, we had the opportunity to chat with IU Mauer School Associate Professor Steve Sanders. Listen in as we discuss his involvement in LGBTQ advocacy, his um, to become a, a lawyer, and talk about his you know background and his attempts to make heads and tells of what uh, we most recently developed from the the Trump administration. Um, so, we'll take it away. Welcome back to Blooming Out. Tonight, we have Steve Saunders on the phone from the IU Mauer School of Law. Steve teaches constitutional law, family law, and constitutional litigation. His scholarship focuses on questions arising out of the 14th Amendment, uh, guarantees of equal protection and due process, with a special focus on issues affecting LGBT persons and same-sex couples. His teachings have been recognized with an IU Trustees Teaching Award and by the vote of the law school students as Outstanding Interactive Professor. For 2016 and 2017, Steve was designated the Henry H. H. Remack Distinguished Scholar by IU's Institute of Advanced Studies. During his time litigating cases as an employee of the law firm Mayor Brown LLP in Chicago, uh, Steve has had many successes. Since then, he has lectured at the University of Chicago Law School, uh, taught at University of Michigan Law School as a visiting professor, and has also co-authored the amicus brief on behalf of the Human Rights Campaign in the landmark Obergfell v. Hodges uh, legal case, which, as we all know, eventually led to the legalization and full federal recognition of same-sex marriage. Thank you for joining us, Steve. Yeah, welcome well, to happy the show, to be here. So. Hey, Frankie. So first, let's uh, get to know you a little bit better. Uh, obviously, we ha- have a little understanding of sort of what your work has been in the past, but kind of bring us up to speed a little bit. How did you get involved? What kind of got you interested as a lawyer and particularly, you know, interested in civil rights and LGBTQ sort of cases? Sure. I, I, was, uh, I was involved in doing LGBT rights work here in Bloomington and in Indiana, actually, before I went to law school. I came here as an undergraduate and studied journalism and political science, and then um, eventually went to work for IU, working for two um, great administrators, um, Ken Gross-Lewis, who passed away, unfortunately, a few months ago, who was the chancellor of the campus, and then uh, for a dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, Mort Lowengrub. Um, I came out, after I came out, during that period, um, you know, I, I got increasingly interested in LGBT work. I um, served as a member of the Bloomington Human Rights Commission, um, uh, which uh, uh, advocated for and was partially at least responsible for Bloomington's adoption of an ordinance protecting against sexual orientation discrimination. I did work, uh, volunteer work on behalf of the Human Rights Campaign um, here in Indiana, doing lobbying and public education work, lobbying uh, legislators and uh, 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 the state's uh, senators and congressional representatives as well. And I served on the board of the Indiana ACLU for a number of years, which also did a lot of 
uh, early pioneering LGBT rights work. So, you know, those things in part led me to decide I, I want to do this work more formally someday. And, and for various other reasons, I decided to go to law school. And so I um, left Bloomington for a while, went to law school, practiced law in Chicago for a number of years, but always always knew I wanted to come back to IU in some way. And so when the opportunity to come back here and teach at the law school came along, it was really my, my dream job. But um, in, in lots of different ways, LGBT issues have always been uh, an important part of my professional life. Now I think of myself not so much as an advocate, but as a scholar and a teacher. And you know, I still write about these issues. I still have opinions and try to persuade people about them. Um, and it's wonderful to be able to do that from, uh, you know, uh, from a place like uh, a law school like IU and from a, from a place that's as pleasant to be in as Bloomington. Absolutely. Uh, you had a somewhat interesting comment. You sort of said uh, when you were younger, you viewed yourself more as an advocate, and now uh, you see yourself as a scholar and sort of an educator on these issues. What would sort of be the differentiating factors between the two? Uh, is, is it simply an issue of formality, or is there some uh, sort of deeper or, uh, you know, uh, more substantial differences that might not be apparent to us who aren't uh, super form or super knowledgeable about the legal world? Well, when you're, you know, when you're lobbying a legislator, you know, and, and using the calling card and being a, the state coordinator for the human rights campaign or something like that, I mean, you know, you, you're there to advocate a position. You know, uh, everyone knows your job is to be an advocate and to argue in favor of a particular position, in this case, whether it's adopting the Employment Non-Discrimination Act or, or something else. I mean, I do think it's important that faculty, you know, faculty members, uh, scholars, professors, um, if they're going to have credibility, they need to be seen as more than advocates. They need to be seen as people who can sort of step out of a role of pure advocacy and, and be honest brokers so that they can understand the strong points and the weaknesses. So let's say when a court makes a decision that's um, favorable toward LGBT rights, um, a scholar, a professor, in teaching that case or in writing about that case, I should be able to say, you know, uh, what the court got right and also what it got wrong, what the weaknesses or the, the shortcomings, the potential criticisms are of the decision. I think that's essential for people who are teaching in the classroom, that students have to know that although I have my opinions, I'm not going to enforce a particular orthodoxy in the classroom. And for professors to get their scholarship published and for it to be respected among my peers, um, it, it, again, it, it has to be, I, I have to demonstrate that I can step outside of the, the constraints that I might have, uh, you know, through personal views or through being an advocate, and that I can fairly and, 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 and in good faith assess cases, legal arguments, legal positions, that kind of thing. Now, you know, lawyers are inherently uh, advocates in many ways, uh, making arguments are our stock in trade. And so that's not to say that I, I haven't um, 
uh, written op-eds and blog posts and so forth that make arguments that take stances. But when I do that, I'm not representing, you know, the LGBT rights lobby. I'm representing myself as a scholar who has studied these issues and whose who's study and thought and analysis and research has led me to particular conclusions. And those conclusions may often align with um, uh, uh, what the LGBT rights community and lobby seeks, but not always. I, 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 I sort of, I also pride myself on my independence. So, um, I, I mean, that's a that's a bit of a long answer, but uh, but I, you know, I, I think it gets to the, the 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 tension or the balance that many of us in the academy try to strike between when when newspapers call us and want us to comment and analyze. They're calling us not because we represent a side, but because we're supposed to be, to some extent, neutral experts who can provide um, a, opinion that, that ought to be respected. And so we, we try to balance that while still maintaining particular commitments that we have in favor of a certain vision of civil rights and the kind of world we want to live in. That's fantastic. And yeah. We really appreciate you taking that time, you know, to sort of act as our expert for now and sort of bring your both your uh, expertise and your willingness to have a sort of neutral standpoint. We really appreciate that. Sure. Uh, so was there any particular um, organization or perhaps a legal case or a um, sort of advocacy campaign that really sort of codified your idea of like, I want to be a lawyer. I want to, you know, continue my academic pursuit in this so that one day I m- might be able to, you know, argue these cases. In Was this something that you being part of a Bloomington community that, you know, kind of lit the fire or is this, you know, a passion that you developed before, you know? Well, uh, sort of very much so. So I'll tell you the story briefly. So um, back in the mid-1990s, when I was working for IU and I was doing some LGBT rights advocacy work, but I I had not yet gone to law school, um, I was uh, uh, contacted by the LGBT student group here at Mauer, it was called Outlaws, uh, still is, and um, asked if I would take part in, a, in, in what was essentially a debate. It was sort of a mock court argument, but it was really essentially a debate about the issue of same-sex marriage. Um, that was, a, you know, in the mid-1990s, that was a really still kind of far-out, cutting-edge issue. Uh, a, a few courts were starting to deal with it, and um, there was a decision in Hawaii from their Supreme Court that looked like it might legalize marriage in that state. That's when we start get it, started getting, uh, you know, the Federal Defense of Marriage Act enacted and so forth. But, you know, as I recall, basically, they couldn't find anybody on the faculty at that time. Not that everybody was opposed to it, but nobody on the faculty really knew enough about the issue or cared enough about the issue to bone up to to participate in this debate. And so they invited me to come over and, and do this, you know, represent the pro-marriage side, and they recruited another, at that time, kind of new young faculty member to represent the anti-marriage side, even though that's not really how he felt. He was willing to sort of play that role, and, you know, we, we did that. And, and you know, the, the, the preparation for that, the study that I had to do, reading opinions and thinking about legal arguments, um, that was a really formative experience for me, and thinking, you know, I, I really want to do this in a more systematic way. I, you know, I want to go to law school and, and, and 
be involved in making these kinds of arguments and litigating these kinds of cases. So, you know, being asked by a student group here in Bloomington to, to be involved with that, um, having that, you know, this was like maybe two or three years after I myself had come out. Um, you know, being exposed to that issue really fascinated me. And to this day, issues and various angles, legal angles on the whole issue of same-sex marriage have been an important part of what I now write about as a professor. I mean, I'm just now sort of going over an article that, that's been accepted that's going to be published in a long review in a few months that uh, deals uh, uh, heavily with the Obergefell and Windsor cases. So, yes, yeah, so, so very much so. You know, being in Bloomington and, and sort of having early exposure to this law school, even though I had not gone to law school yet, um, and, and being known as a, as a sort of advocate for these issues was, was very formative for me. We're going to take a quick look at our community calendar as we take a break from Blooming Out. Um, if, uh, let's see. Jamie Spangle presents Circuit Berserk at the back door. Come to the back door Saturday, March 31st for a night of burlesque and drag like you've never seen before. Noted performers, Jamie Spangle, Spikey Van Dyke, and Petite Coquette will lead a cast of national and local entertainers in vaudeville-esque that will be one for the ages. Doors for the event open at 9 and the event starts at 10. For more details and ticket information, check out bckdoor.com slash calendar. Again, that's the Jamie Spangle Presents Cirque Berzi- Ber- Berserk at the back door. All right, now I'm going to throw it uh, back over to the guys. Thank you very much, Lucas. We appreciate that. You were just listening to the community calendar with our fantastic audio engineer. And you know what, Frankie? I don't know if there's any sort of entertainment, any sort of radio like this in the rest of Indiana. You know, well, they're definitely not uh, clones of us two. So I mean, I think we're it. So we can totally say that as yeah, just factual. Well, yeah, <laughs> Indiana's only news source for LGBTQ news and current events, and we take pride in that. And if you guys enjoy this you value community radio uh keeping informed of local events and interesting people do not hesitate to pick up that phone and call us here at 812-323-1200 we have the wonderful tom henderson working the phone so if you want to chat him up that's quite all right and could people walk in if they felt like it oh yeah you can walk in you Come on in, give us a high five. Well, I know I'll give you one. <laughs> uh, can mail it. Uh, you can even handle it all online via our secure donation link at donate.wfhb.org. But that's enough uh, us, you know, asking for money. Huh? But you know what? I want to hear a little bit more of what Steve has to say. So let's kick it back to that interview. How about just to wind back even further? Um, you talk about coming out, you know, three years prior to that. Um, I always like to get a little bit of, you know, if people are comfortable, comfortable enough talking about it, uh, that experience for you. Is it something that you were in school already um, that was on the radar, something you had, you know, kind of 
pushed away, a supportive family. Um, you know, what what brought you to you know to the evolution of of who you are today? Was that uh, yeah, you know, coming out for me, I, I had a very positive experience. Coming out for me was a, was a, was a relatively easy experience, even in 1993. Um, you know, in part, it was because I was older. I mean, I was several years out of college by then, so I came out, you know, relative what would be considered by today's standards relatively late. Right. Um, but uh, you know, by that point. Um, you know, I guess I was just fortunate enough to have a family that was not particularly judgmental, did not have conservative religious views that might have gotten in the way. Um, you know, my friends all knew me for what I was. I later learned that some of my friends suspected I was gay anyway, uh, that it didn't come as a right. huge surprise to them. Um, you know, I always remember I was um, I was in Washington, D.C. I was having dinner with an old college friend, another IU alum, and uh, we were in in Washington, D.C. for the wedding of a third mutual friend from our college days. And we got to talking, and he sort of came out to me, and I sort of came out to him. And after that, it was as if, you know, the door had opened, and I just started basically telling people and, you know, conducting my life as an out gay man. So I, I feel very fortunate. You know, I, I recognize that I was much luckier than many people are and that even than many people are today um, to have had what I think of as just a very easy and pretty much entirely positive coming out experience. That's wonderful. Um, so we're going to hopefully kind of skip ahead a little bit now and talk about uh, some recent uh, developments in the uh, Trump administration, LGBTQ community, and so on, um, namely the Trump administration's transgender military ban. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you could, could you walk us through a little bit of the history of this and if there has been sort of a uh, history of transgender individuals and LGBTQ individuals serving within the military even prior to the Trump administration? Oh, oh, sure. Well, I, I mean, you know, particularly, well, let's start with, with gays and lesbians. I mean, gays and lesbians have always been part of the military. I mean, they've always been part of military forces going back to ancient history, probably, in some sense, even though the idea of a person as having a gay or lesbian identity is really a product of the last 150 years or so. But, um, you know, so, so sure, gay people always served. The issue is, could they serve openly? And so during the Clinton um, presidency, there was this controversy. He, the, the, the military banned um, service by gays and lesbians, which meant in practice by open gays and lesbians, because how are they going to know, uh, you know, if you're not if you're not open about it. Um, and, and the uh, Clinton tried to engineer this, what was called the don't ask, don't tell compromise. Um, but that's still, um, you know, it meant there might not be as many witch hunts, but people still couldn't serve openly. There was the threat of lawsuits. And finally, in the Obama administration, Congress voted to end the don't ask, don't tell policy. So right now, gays and lesbians serve openly in the military. Um, uh, thanks to a repeal of what had been a, a ban and then later a don't ask, don't tell policy. Um, don't ask, that, that, that um, enactment, though, didn't help transgender individuals. Trans, uh, 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 transgender individuals had, had remained banned from military service, thought to be unfit in some way for military service. What happened is the Obama administration announced um, 
that it wanted to study the issue, that it wanted to change the policy. This is in the closing days of the Obama administration, and that they were going to recommend that um, the, the ban on, on service and recruitment and service by transgender individuals be ended. What happened is the Trump administration came in and kind of out of the blue, the president announced announces no, there's you know going to be a ban and. And, and we're not going to change the policy. We're going to drop the study and the it's kind of inching toward a change in the policy that the Obama administration had done. And now the latest news we have sounds like what it's going to mean is that if you identify as transgender and you're currently in the military, that's okay. They won't kick you out. But um, new recruits who identify as transgender will not be allowed to enter the military. You know, this gets to, you know, one of the really fascinating and difficult questions, I think, about being transgender, about the whole phenomenon of gender identity, is it means different things to different people. Um, I, I think some people have this kind of old-school retro idea that uh, transgender means you have had or want to have um what used to be called a sex change operation, sex reassignment surgery. There are many, many transgender people who have not had surgery, uh, who may or may not um, be on hormone ter- therapies, for example, but still identify as transgender. So, you know, unlike, for example, race or ethnicity, um, you know, being transgender is not necessarily for many people something that's immediately apparent. So, I mean, that means that will transgen- will people who in their heart of hearts identify as transgender, their, their gender identity does not match their uh, biological gender or their physical gender? Sure. And, and, you know, they'll presumably continue to serve and continue to enter into the military. I, I think what this ban is really likely to affect is people who are in the process of transitioning, people who have already transitioned, whose um, public presentation of gender does not match their genetic uh, or, or biological or physical gender. And, and they, those are the people who are probably most likely to be adversely affected by this policy. Just as this policy is, you know, coming through and it's working its way, you know, through the courts, um, is there kind of a stirring right now with just the GBLTQ community or the gay and lesbians um, you, fearful that, you know, you know, this is the beginning um, and we need to prepare ourselves for what could be coming up down the pike? Um, for, you know, maybe not soon, but and not in the, you know too far future. Um, is, is this something that the academics and the, the lawyers and people like yourself are, are kind of, you know, wide-eyed about and, 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 and looking at all the, you know, the, the possibilities of what this could, could mean? I think, I think, you know, any person who's looking at this issue sort of neutrally uh, and, and trying to do a good faith analysis, whether it's gay and lesbian rights or transgender rights, uh, I'm kind of focusing on those groups, recognizing their other identities and so forth. But, you know, kind of the, the, the you know, for, for convenience, many Americans think of, okay, there's sexual orientation, right. gender identity. Okay. <laughs> I think in both of those, the, the, the clear arc of history, the, the clear social forces, the clear direction of society is in favor of greater uh, acceptance and greater mainstreaming. Um, you know, I see no possibility that we're going to go back on same-sex marriage. I mean, it's become too well settled, too well accepted, more than 60% of the, of the country 
countries in favor of it as to be blunt, sort of older Americans who tend to be the most conservative on on that issue pass away and are replaced by younger Americans who are more liberal on gay rights and they don't become more conservative as they get older. We know that. You know, it's only going to continue. So I think think gay and lesbian rights, um, I'm not worried about backlash. I I mean, there's certainly going to be skirmishes about things like the wedding cake case and, you know, uh, uh, religious business owners who will think they should be exempt from having to comply with anti-discrimination laws. But I personally do not see any serious possibility that that somehow gay rights, that the sodomy laws are going to be implemented again or that states are going to be able to get away with denying same-sex marriages. Both the law and sort of our social expectations are just too well settled. Uh, I I just don't think there's going to be any going back. Um, Transgender issues are still at a a different stage. They're still evolving. Um, Do you think it's a lot to do with just people trying to get their heads wrapped around what it means? Um, You know, Americans like kind of the black and white, you know, and there's nothing in between. And with- I think it's. I think it's. I think it is a, a more difficult issue for people to understand that gender identity is a different. Uh, you know, I think many people now can accept whether they think you're born that way or you become that way. You know, the the idea of sexual orientation. I want to have sex and romantic relationships with either a, with a man rather than a woman. You know, people can get that. Um, and and this is where I kind of put on my hat that I talked about earlier, where I you know can say things that aren't necessarily popular or orthodox. I, I mean, I think, you know, as much as I respect the idea that it's become sort of mainstream orthodoxy in the transgender community, that, that you know, I should be able to determine unilaterally what my own gender identity is. I don't need to provide any proof to anybody. I don't need to have surgery, hormones. I don't need to provide evidence. I mean, not to be um, flip, but, you know, if I wake up one day and feel like I want to present to the world as a man, and I wake up the next day and feel I want to present to the world as a woman, that's my business, and the world has to accept that. I can totally respect that. What I have to say is that does not make it any easier for people who are of good faith trying to understand this issue to get their minds around it. When when we, we don't have, and I think the transgender community really strongly resists, any sort of objective definition or criteria for what it means to be transgender. Again, it, it ranges from... It, it, everything from, um, you know, I, I, I simply, in my heart of hearts, feel I'm a different gender, but I still present to the world as my physical gender, to somebody who's had complete gender reassignment surgery, hormone therapy, and has, you know, completely transitioned genders, and, and sort of everything in between. And, and so it's one thing to say we have to respect people's individuality and ability to identify their, to, to, to shape their own identity, but I think we have to understand why that makes this a difficult issue for some people to understand and also makes it hard for the law to deal with when we still live in a world that, that is defined, you know, for better or worse, by sort of binary sexuality. We have men's rooms and women's rooms, and we have, you know, male and female checkboxes and many legal documents. And, you know, that may change, but the change will come gradually. Do you think that because of the fact that uh, transgender is, in a way, you know, a little bit more fluid, a little bit less predefined, that kind of comes at odds with uh, sort of how 
uh, institutions like the military function, you know, given that, as you said, there is sort of an expectation of they have to keep records, they have to sort of maintain an understanding of their fighting force, all that stuff. Do, do you think that might be partially uh, where some of this uh, uh, resistance, complication might arise? I actually think in the military that the idea of binary sexuality, you know, so much of the world is still organized, again, for better or worse, uh, around the idea of binary sexuality is um, is not necessarily applicable to the military. I mean, there, you know, the military may still have a kind of male-dominated macho culture, but women have been serving in the military for years. Women can now serve in any position, including any combat position. So, you know, the military has kind of erased the significance of the difference between being male and female, and basically says if you are sort of physically and emotionally and mentally able to do the job, you should be able to do the job. And so I actually don't think that there's a particularly good reason to exclude transgender people from the military. Again, to the extent that, excuse me, to the extent that um, they, you know, that their medical care may present temporarily, um, you know, a circumstance where they can't serve. Well, you know, people in the military get cancer, get other kinds of things that make them temporarily unable to do certain functions. That doesn't categorically disqualify them. So, uh, so I, I really don't think it should for transgender people who need certain medical therapies either. But in a combat situation, if somebody's on hormone therapy and, you know, and you're out in the field or wherever you might be and you're not going to, you know, your your hormones aren't going to be available to you, um, would, you know, is that an argument that I, you know, that the, the military is kind of pressing on um, and why uh, transgender people might not be the ideal um, warrior in, in those situations? Well, I, I, again, I don't think it is because... Um, you know, again, you know, there there are people in the military who may lack certain uh, uh, physical qualifications or certain skills. Not everybody in the military can do every job. There are plenty of people in the military who can't, you know, who who maybe are just not qualified, don't have the training or the physical strength to do certain kinds of combat jobs, certain kinds of special forces jobs. So uh, uh, again, you know, there, there are, you know, range of, right. of, of qualifications and skills and strength levels and so forth that people in the military have. Um, but again, you know, now, you know, women don't have the same hormones as men if they, if, if, if they just identify as women, but all combat positions are open to women. I think more of the issue is if you're undergoing some kind of ongoing medical treatment that, that temporarily sort of impairs your ability to do a certain job, then, you know, well, again, you know, if you're in the military, people develop all kinds of ailments that may temporarily uh, sideline them for something. But, you know, and, and another issue is not everybody who identifies as transgender plans to have hormone therapy or plans to have hormone therapy immediately anyway, or maybe they've already had hormone therapy. So once again, I think the sort of broad generalization about one, what it means to be transgender, and two, about what people's capabilities are who identify as transgender, I think those are very problematic for the policy and, you know, will, will undoubtedly come up in litigation when this policy is undoubtedly challenged in court. 
Speaking of litigation, I, I kind of want to get into a little bit of the recent events surrounding uh, the past. Now, I, I feel almost a little ridiculous saying the past uh, transgender military ban, but we all kind of found out last Friday, uh, the Trump administration did release a new memo that sort of revised some of the language that was previously used. Um one thing that really popped out to me was last Thursday when U.S. District Court Judge Marsha Peckman ordered uh, the Trump administration and the I, what I believe was the Department of Justice to reveal what quote-unquote experts were consulted during the first ban. And almost, you know, within 24 hours, we see this new memo. Uh, do you have any input or thought of sort of insight that might be sort of surrounding this? To be honest, I haven't uh, sort of, I haven't looked at that opinion or studied the most recent memo sort of carefully enough to know if there's a connection between those two things. I mean, probably, I'm guessing the memo was probably in the works for a longer period of time and probably just wasn't something that was generated because of litigation. But I think what the court is probably concerned about and wanting to know what the expert basis for this policy was. And, and you know, the same thing should apply to the new policy, because they're still talking about generally uh, banning people, banning the, the enlistment of new people. You know, the, the allegation here is that, um, or one allegation anyways, that the policy is based on what is a legal term is called animus. That is, there's no particularly valid, objective, fact-based justification for this policy. Now, you know, you can say if a person is, is legally blind, they shouldn't be allowed to enroll in the military. Most people probably would not question that. You know, just about everything you need to be able to do in the military probably requires decent eyesight. You know, to ban blind people from the military would not be invidious discrimination. It would not mean, it would not raise the suspicion of animus toward blind people uh, or toward people of, you know, 60 year, you know, 60 year olds can't enroll in the military. That's not a sort of invidious age discrimination. It's just kind of physical realities. Um, but this, because, um, you know, transgender people are serving, have served in the military, to the, the circumstances under which the policy was announced give rise to the suspicion this wasn't based on any real need or any shortcoming that transgender people have or any tremendous new expense they might pose. This was just politics. This was a sop to religious conservatives, or this was some other product of uh, a trans anti-transgender bias and animus. I think, you know, that that's the question that's going to be at the center of this. A, a government policy that has a legitimate fact-based justification is generally fine under the Constitution, but a policy that's just generated based on a desire to harm or scapegoat a particular group of people generally is not constitutional. So... I guess the question ends up being, um, with regards to sort of how all this came about, um, you do mention sort of the when we first started our conversation, the tweets and uh, sort of how that brings up uh, additional questions regarding sort of the original impetus behind the uh, recommendation. I end up sort of wondering, uh, 
why did it come so soon when I believe there was still an open study from the Joint Chiefs of Staff or the Department of Defense? That Right. I mean, the Defense Department was actively studying this and seemed to be on the cusp of saying, you know, that, 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 that transgender military service would be okay. Well, I mean, you know, I, I can't claim to have any special inside knowledge of the Trump administration any more than, than, than you guys would. I mean, I, I think the usual a common assumption behind this is that this was politics, that this was sort of payback in a way. So what we think, if you monitor religious conservative blogs, websites, publications, um, this has become something close to an obsession with religious conservatives. Their basic position is to deny the possibility of gender transition, to basically insist there's binary sexuality and your sex is your sex, and this whole idea that your gender identity may not match your sex is just a, an invention without a science sound basis that runs contrary to natural law, and so we should reject it. And, and that, is, that is the dialogue on this issue you see among religious conservatives, to, to again deny basically the possibility of, of being transgender, of changing your gender identity, of having a gender identity that doesn't match your physical or biological sex. And I think those people now have access to the president and to people close to the president and to decision-making channels in the administration that they didn't have before. And, and so, you know, what prompted that one out of the blue tweet from the president a few months ago? You know, who knows? Who knows? Who knows what motivates him to do just about everything he does? Um, <laughs> but, but I think it's clear that it wasn't based on any serious recommendation from the Department of Defense. It was based on social conservative politics. People who had managed to get to him and persuade him that this would be a good idea, or that he would have more support from that constituency if he did this. What advice would you give if you, you know, a transgender uh, community that's looking to, you know, uh, you know, have their voices heard and, and, and you know, uh, to, to basically uh, to, to counter what's happening? And if you, you know, with a group, if you had somebody come up to you and said, hey, you know, we're, we're looking to counter this, what would you be your suggestions on a way that, you know, people could get involved and, 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 and do something that would be serious to, that people would, would, would hear them as far as arguments well, and... Well, I think it depends if you're talking, you know, there's both a kind of short-term and a long-term strategy. In the short term, I, I mean, I, th I think the solutions are, well, there, there's several. One, I mean, this is going to be litigated, and, and the resources and the groups that are going to litigate it are probably already have the resources they need, and, you know, it, it's going to be litigated by, by good, qualified people regardless. Um, well, I mean, another obvious solution here is to, uh, in the upcoming elections, elect a Democratic Congress, um, because a, a, a majority of Congress could always change the policy. Now, Trump may veto it, and there may be a fight back and forth, but, you know, Congress has the authority over this policy, that want, over a policy like this, if it wants to assert it. The other advice is obviously to elect a different president in three years, and if you want to change the policy that way. I mean, you know, in terms of pure strategy, how to achieve change, I think those are, you know, the most important things. But in a longer-term strategy, I would say that transgender people need to come out as transgender, need to talk about their lives with other people, need to be open about it. I am convinced that the single most important factor 
in the success of the gay and lesbian part of the LGBT civil rights movement and the ultimate success of things like same-sex marriage was the coming out movement. Um, you know, many, many studies show that, you know, the more, that the, the more gay, you know, if people who know gay people as family, co-workers, friends, neighbors become more likely to support their rights. Um, and, and so I think in the long run, um, you know, we will need that same process to occur for Americans to get more comfortable with and then ultimately to be more supportive of the equality of, 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 trans, of our transgendered brothers and sisters. We are out of time. Before we go, let's take a few moments to thank our expert opinion for the hour, Steve Sanders. Additionally, special thanks to our Spring Fun Drive day sponsored this afternoon, The Limestone Post, an independent magazine committed to providing a space for informative, inclusive, and in-depth stories about Bloomington and the surrounding areas. Thank you, Limestone Post, for supporting WFHB Community Radio. And one last thank you to all of our listeners and volunteers who make this show possible. If you want to get in that last-minute donation, you can still call in at 812-323-1200. Blooming Out is produced by Alex Ashkin. Our executive producer is WFHB News Director Wes Martin. Lucas Fisher is our engineer. For Blooming Out and WFHB, I'm Alex Ashkin. And I'm Frankie Preslav. Tune in next week for a brand new Booming Out every Thursday from 6 to 7 p.m. on WFHB Volunteer Powered Community Radio.